Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Matthew, the fifth chapter. When the Magi came from the east, bearing gifts fit for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they consulted with King Herod, asking a simple question, expecting that he would know the answer. And the question was, where is he who is born king of the Jews? This is quite upsetting for Herod, of course. He was most insecure, and God spared Jesus' life, protecting him by visitation from an angel to Joseph, and Joseph, Mary, and the baby escaped into Egypt. We know that Jesus is described by the Apostle Paul as the King of Glory. Paul also describes Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. When Jesus was brought before Pilate to be judged, he was asked if in fact he was the King of the Jews. Jesus said, you said it. But then Jesus goes on to say, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom which Jesus presides over is not the kind of kingdoms which are ruled by men. The characteristics of that kingdom are expressed in what we know as the Beatitudes introducing the Sermon on the Mount. So if you will turn with me now and look at this passage in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 3 through 9 together today. Verse 3 of Matthew 5 reads this way in the New American Standard Bible. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I remind you also of another part of the Sermon on the Mount that you have undoubtedly memorized, that which we call the Lord's Prayer. And you remember how as part of that petition that Jesus teaches us to pray is that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven comes to earth when God's people respond properly to him. I would take note and draw your attention to each of these Beatitudes, which is introduced by the same word, blessed or blessed are certain people. That word is a word which carries with it the idea of congratulations to, is the idea that predominates in that word. And so we are to be congratulated, and then those who are part of the kingdom of heaven are congratulated based upon the traits that are true of those who are part of the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to divide these seven Beatitudes into three major ideas having to do with what the traits of the kingdom of heaven actually are. The first one we're going to look at is humility. Then we're going to look after that at the concept of holiness. And lastly, we're going to look at the idea 
of harmony as it relates to the kingdom of heaven. Let's begin with the first characteristic, humility. Before we launch into an examination of these three Beatitudes found in verses 3 through 5 having to do with humility, let me pause and just make some general observations about humility itself. We know the Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, the first of seven things which are described as being hated by God is that of haughty eyes. And what does the idea of haughty eyes suggest? It suggests pride, doesn't it? God is opposed to the proud. As I was thinking of an illustration from the Bible that would give us clear insight into this, I thought of the book of Esther. Perhaps you know the book of Esther's content. It's the only book in the Bible which really doesn't have the name of God in it. It's sort of surprising. But there is a figure who is sort of the anti-God figure, and his name is Haman. Haman is an Agagite, for whatever that's worth. And Haman was a man who was close to the king of Persia. And he did whatever he could to curry favor with the king. He hoped at some point to become a person of high standing in the kingdom. He worked feverishly to achieve this goal. And it was his great delight when finally he achieved the rank of assistant to the king. This man, Haman, and his family who preceded him held a grudge against the Jews. The reason being is because Agag, remember he's an Agagite, Agag was a king who was killed by King Saul. And that had never gotten out of the craw of the Agagites. And he held this grudge all these years. And let me just go ahead and make a statement that we'll revisit if I remember later in the teaching today. There is a close relationship between a certain kind of pride and unforgiveness. Just tuck that away. We'll come back to that a little later. So Haman was reveling in his glory. He was eaten up with his position and pride. He decided he was going to get back at the Jews by getting the king to issue an edict that would result in the slaughter of all the Jews throughout the entire Persian Empire. The king, in the meanwhile, was having trouble sleeping one night, and he called to his librarian and said, Bring me something to read, something about the chronicles of our great empire. And so the librarian brought him a scroll, and as God would have it, as he opened up the scroll, it was a description of how a Jew by the name of Mordecai, who, by the way, was the first cousin of Esther, who was the queen, he was the guardian of Esther, he had caught wind that there were two of the enemies of the king who were plotting assassination of him. And consequently, Mordecai went and reported that to the king, and the king was saved. 
That was sometime before the event of Haman trying to do away with all the Jews. And when the king found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he wanted to rescind this decree which he had given for the destruction of all the Jews. Haman was out to get Mordecai especially because Mordecai, once Haman ascended to the place of great importance, it was said by the king that whenever Haman came into a room or into an area and anyone was there, they were to bow in homage to him because of his position. Mordecai refused to bow. Why? Because there is only one God and Yahweh is his name and therefore he was not going to bow to any human being. So that lay behind Haman's petition to have the Jews wiped out came to a head for him in his revenge motive. Well, Esther found out about what was going on and she told her king, who actually was her husband, that her people were those people. And he arranged, and God really was the arranger, to turn the tables on Haman. You see, Haman had already built a special scaffold to have Mordecai hanged from, publicly disgraced, as the other Jews would have been destroyed. But then God turned the table on him. And Haman, to his great horror, was put in a role of secondary importance to none other than Mordecai himself. And so he ended up, as the story goes, hanging from the gallows that he had built for the death of Mordecai. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Bible tells us in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, our, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a slave, actually. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. This is Jesus. This is He who is our king. And his kingdom is characterized by humility. Do you know that Jesus himself says this? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And you will learn that I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus is the epitome of humility. And in that same passage in Philippians chapter 2, we were told that we are to have the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus, that being an attitude of humility. This is what he writes. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Do not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the way we who know Jesus, if we're part of the kingdom of heaven, we are to demonstrate that same spirit of humility and how difficult that is. We are by first birth born sinners is what the scripture teaches us. No one has to teach you or me 
how to sin. We don't have to teach our children how to do it. We come by it naturally. That's why the Bible calls people who do not know Jesus yet as natural people. They're only acting out of their nature. It's their given nature. So we are people who are born proud, actually. Because pride is arguably the most ancient of all sins. It even predates history. If you were to take the time to look in Isaiah chapter 14, and as a companion piece look at Ezekiel 28, you would see a description of the fall of Satan in heaven. Do you know why he fell from a place of great importance in heaven? It's because he wanted to take over God's throne. He did what we do in a smaller way when we want to play the role of God in our lives rather than see God as who He is. Pride is the anti-God attitude that we all are born with and which we all fight. But what the Scripture teaches us is that we're to be humble. Look at the first beatitude. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. This means blessed is the person who recognizes his or her spiritual poverty. The word translated poor is not the word poor as it relates to having absolutely nothing. It's the word which was used to describe those who were poor in Jesus' day in Israel who were day laborers. They would work a day's work and they would be paid that day. Then they would go back and work a second day and a third day and a fourth day. And with each day came the payment, which was typically a denarii, or denarius, really. That's the singular of the, of the coinage. And that person had to keep going on working. Some of you are looking forward to the day that you never have to get up by an alarm clock and go to work again. Some of you are not. You love your work. But some of you are tired of working. And you've been saving and saving and saving. And you've paid into some sort of 401k. And you've paid your Social Security tax over the years. And you're going to have something you can depend on in the way of income, right? But there was no such system. But this word, which is used for poor, is not that kind of poverty where you have a job and you work and you go and you go and you go. The idea here is the idea of having absolutely nothing. It depicts a beggar. Blessed are those who are poverty-stricken in the sense of knowing that they are spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the beginning point, of course, of humility, but also it's the beginning point of becoming a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I'm afraid that people like me who do what I'm doing today, in the name of Christ, in the name of the Bible, in evangelical churches in America, have soft-pedaled the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus started proclaiming the gospel, he said these words, and the order is very important. Repent. And believe in the gospel. The beginning point 
of being the recipients of the gospel is the recognition that we are spiritually impoverished. We are spiritually bankrupt. There is absolutely no contribution which we can make to our salvation. We can't simply give a tip of the hat to God and expect to become members of the kingdom of heaven. We have to acknowledge to the Lord, which begins with acknowledging to oneself that we are indeed spiritually impoverished. That's part of humility. But it's not all there is to it. Look at the next beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Congratulations to those who mourn. How long has it been since you said to somebody, congratulations for mourning? Hardly. That's not our way of thinking. But this is important to understand how we become members of the kingdom of heaven. And these beatitudes really build upon one another. It begins by acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy. It continues by the grief or the mourning which follows the recognition of how it's our sin that separates us from God. It's our sin which caused Christ to be crucified for those sins and be punished for our sins. It's really important. When I was 18 years old, freshly graduated from high school, I followed a friend of mine to Sears. He had gotten a job working there installing window units of Sears production of air conditioners. Memphis, that was very important in the summer, air conditioners. So humid there. I thought, that sounds like a great job. And I went there, and I was hired, but not for that particular department. I went hired to help put on add-on air conditioning to homes which already had the, I guess you'd say the venting, ductwork, thank you, Dan. I appreciate your helping me. Dan was here last night. It was great. The ductwork, yeah, I've tried to forget it. It was a nightmare for me, as you're going to see in just a moment. And so I went about that. I worked all summer. I worked as hard as I knew how to work. I took all the overtime opportunities, and I finished. I was glad it was over. I was glad to go back to college after that long, hot summer. After college, in the next spring, in May, I went back, asked for a job again, fully expecting to be hired. Mr. Davis, the personnel director, sat me down, and he said, Mike, do you know that nobody in your department wanted you as a helper last year? Well, I'm ashamed to say it. I knew under, underlying that I was born with a mechanical bypass, so it was, no big, it, was, it was no big revelation to me. But I began to weep, actually. Here's a 19-year-old. I don't want to say it. Wimp, I guess. I don't know. But... But I was, you know what really disturbed me most about that? The thing which disturbed me the most was 
that I knew I had done the best I could because I was taught that in my home of origin. Always do your best. I was taught that by the coaches which I had through the years, the teachers which I had. I had a great environment for being raised in home, school, athletics, my church. Do the best you can. And I had done my dead level best, but it was not enough. I was mechanically bankrupt. And therefore, I was reduced to tears when I thought about having done my best and it was not good enough. Many people who come to Christ, in fact, I think everyone to one degree or another who really receives Jesus must acknowledge that she or he is totally incapable of working your way into the kingdom of heaven. You are among company today. We all are in that situation. And God sees to it that we are humbled in that way. Remember what I mentioned earlier? God opposes the proud. He does. He does not have any patience with pride. And so we need to understand this progression. The recognition that I'm poor in spirit. That I'm spiritually bankrupt. Followed by this reaction of mourning. But the good news is, what does it say? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. By whom shall they be comforted? By none other than the great comforter himself. We know that our God is the God of all comfort. That's one of the names which God has given to himself. The God who specializes in comforting us. The Holy Spirit's name is Comforter. He comforts us when we are disturbed. He makes us uncomfortable because the Holy Spirit puts the finger on our spiritual poverty and says, you just don't have what it takes to get into the kingdom of God. But God the Father has made a way through the person of Jesus Christ. So there's great comfort and great relief. There probably are scores of people in this room today who remember how they had lived thinking that they had to be good enough to get into heaven. They had to do enough good works to get into heaven. But they came to understand what the Bible says, that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. That there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good This is a picture which is painted by God in the book of Romans and elsewhere in Isaiah about where we stand. But do you remember how that recognition hits you? Do you? Did it cause a sense of spiritual impoverishment and maybe desperation? And it resulted in grieving internally, if not externally as well? And then what happened? You were comforted. God came. He gave you access to the kingdom through the person of Jesus Christ. Here's the third thing, and we'll move on to the second quality. This quality of humility is further explained in verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Some of your translations 
Read, blessed are the meek. Gentle is the better translation. Remember, I mentioned just a few moments ago that Jesus is not only humble in heart, He's also gentle in heart. These are the words of Christ. Just like here, He uses the identical word here that He uses over in Matthew chapter 11, referring to Himself. So Jesus is gentle. What does this word actually communicate? It it might be a surprise what it communicates. This word was used outside the New Testament to describe a wild stallion who had been broken by a horse trainer and had been brought to a place of submission so that when a bit was put in its mouth and someone mounted that horse and held the reins, then that horse, who was equally powerful after having been broken as it was prior to being broken, but was under the control of the rider. When... This scripture says, blessed are the gentle. It's a picture of God's breaking us in the area of our pride. Remember, for the third time I'm going to say it, God opposes the proud. He brings us to an end of ourselves, an end of self-effort in attempting to make ourselves right with God. But the reality is, all that effort is wasted. It's a picture of the vestige of pride in your life that has to be rid from your life in order for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 18, we didn't read this portion of Matthew 18, but it begins with the disciples of Jesus coming to him and saying to him, Lord, Lord, Who is greatest in your kingdom? They were always worried about that. They're kind of like us, right? We don't care if we don't get a lot of things, but we want to get that place of significance. Who is the greatest? And then Jesus, before answering the question, gestured to bring a child to him. And I can, in my mind's eye, see Jesus sitting. It was his way of teaching. He would sit down to teach. And There was a circle of disciples around him. And this little child was placed in the middle of the circle, is what the Scripture teaches us. And then he says, Whoever is humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility, I repeat, is the earmark, the hallmark, if you will, of the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Submission, just like a stallion broken, has to submit to the rider who has the bit in the mouth and holds the reins. We are to submit ourselves to the Lord. The book of James says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We're to be Servants of the living God. King David, in the 143rd Psalm, says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground, for I am your servant. I'm your slave, is really what he was saying, if you look carefully at the word. I'm your slave. Teach me. I want to know your will. I want you to lead me. I know I can't do it. This is essential if you and I are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did come 
as a baby in order to eventually establish a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We know he died the most wicked of deaths on a cross. But that was part of the plan of salvation too. Jesus showed us how to live by dying. And when Jesus Christ bids a man or a woman to come follow him, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, he bids that person to come and die to himself or herself. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross. Let him deny himself. Let him follow me. First thing about the kingdom of heaven. It's about humility. Let's look at the second thing, though. It's about holiness. Holiness is largely misunderstood. We know that we are told by God in both the Old and the New Testament multiple times, be holy as I am holy. But Lord, you say in this text that I am spiritually bankrupt. How can I become holy? Well, when you acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy, and it's not a casual acknowledgement because it's accompanied by a sense of horror almost, almost at the fact that you have been an opponent of God and didn't even know it, perhaps. And now you're recognizing that. But once we yield to the Lord, we submit to Him, then God's holiness becomes our holiness because He sends the Holy Spirit of God to live in us and begin to reproduce the life of Jesus Christ in us and give us the power to overcome. The reason that so few people who bear the name Christian really live an overcoming life is directly related to not being humbled before God, not having a spirit that has been broken by God, one who is under the leadership of the Lord. We have to yield ourselves to the Lord. So the scripture says, blessed are those, in verse 6, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger, this idea is to hunger not for a nibble of the loaf of bread, not for just a bite of the loaf of bread, but hungry for the whole thing. I have a mental picture. I don't know where it came from, but I've seen it depicted in film many times where people were starving and all of a sudden they get a chance to get some food. And so there's this mad dash for the food. And I can see a person taking a whole loaf of bread, breaking it, and then just devouring it. That's the idea. And thirsting. It's not just a sip of water that a person longs for. It's the whole pitcher of water because the person is dying of thirst. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are thirsty, and you shall receive that which will result in a river of living water coming after that thirsting being quenched by me and continually being quenched. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. We look to him to give us righteousness and we respond to his call and his teaching in obedience to him. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we live this life and we are satisfied. It's very encouraging to me to know that my satisfaction in this life 
is not tied to my performance. As a preacher, as a pastor, even as a husband and as a parent, a grandparent, a son when my parents were alive, I wanted to do well. And I still do want to do well in all those areas. But the reality is my primary focus is to become holy as God is holy through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I will find my value in my relationship to the Lord. And I will find my satisfaction in Him. Are you lacking satisfaction? Are you like Mick Jagger? You can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) We need to pray for a man like him. A life spent. Almost gone. And he's still seeking satisfaction. You don't have to seek it any longer if you need it today. Today is the day of your salvation. If you will apply what we're looking at today to your life and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And you will submit yourself gladly to His ownership of you. And you will want Him. You want to know Him. You want to make Him known to other people as well. Let's look at one other of these Beatitudes as it results responds to the need of holiness. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word pure is the word from which our English word and associated words catharsis comes. It's the idea of a purging of that which is hurtful, that which is poisonous, purging it, and being cleansed is the idea. Blessed are the pure in heart. Our hearts, Jesus talks about this in Mark 7. I almost said Matthew, it's Mark 7. We don't have time to look at it, but I would encourage you to look at it. And the outcome of what he says is that it's out of the heart that all kinds of evil come. All kinds come from the heart. Every evil thought comes from my heart. That's why Jesus talks about our loving the Lord our God with all our heart. This is why God speaks in talking about the kingdom of God coming on earth, the new covenant. He says, I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new heart. We all need a heart transplant. God is the one who gives us that when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 12 for just a moment. The second part of verse 14. We are to pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. This is another word. Sanctification is a word for holiness. Be holy. It's the idea of being righteous. Those are synonyms. Holiness and sanctification are synonyms. The idea of sanctification is being set apart for God's use. That's the idea. And unless we are sanctified, we will not see the Lord. How important do you suppose seeing the Lord is? It's of ultimate importance. Nothing more important. That you see Him in this life with your spiritual heart and eyes and that you look forward to seeing Him in the next life when this life ends. And you have a relationship with the Lord as you grow in holiness with Him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Keep your place there 
in Hebrews. We're going to go back to it as we look at this last quality. What's the first quality of a person who's in the kingdom of heaven? Humility. The quality we just looked at, what is it? It's holiness. And now we're looking at the quality of harmony. And before I dig into this a little deeper, let me make note of this. I referred already to Proverbs 6. And the first thing that tops the list of the things which God hates is haughty eyes or pride. The last thing is a person who stirs up trouble divides the brothers. Someone who is divisive. Someone who is anti-harmonious. Someone who loves to stir the pot relationally, especially in the body of Christ. People of such demeanor are people who are detestable to God, is what the Bible says. And there's a great lesson and warning in that for us. Let's look at two Beatitudes here which talk about what it means to be agents of harmony. Look at verse 7 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Bible says not only is our God the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the first couple of verses, but he's also the God of mercies. And lamentations say that his mercies are new every morning. This is our God. And we have that God living in us by the Holy Spirit. And that God wants to reproduce that kind of life through us. We looked at the words of Jesus in Luke 6. He says, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. You know what mercy is? Mercy is not giving, getting rather, what I deserve. There are lots of times I don't deserve mercy because I have been a deliberate, intentional offender. I don't deserve it. The person that I really offend is God. I don't deserve God's mercy, but He gives it freely anyway. His mercies are new. How frequently? Every morning. Provided that I respond properly to the need to make things right with God and with others as well. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness. The word purify or cleanse is a sister word to the word pure, which is used in the Beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart. We need to confess that sin to Him. When we've offended the Lord, we need His mercy. We need to say, Lord, please. And remember, His mercies are there for us. If we're sincere, we confess, He purifies us. And He puts them behind us. And we go forward. This parable which was read from Matthew 18 about a king who was calling in his debts. His slave owed a bunch, 10,000 talents. Jesus was the master of using hyperbole. He exaggerates here. You know what that was the equivalent of? 10,000 would be the equivalent of 4,500 days of work. And then this fellow slave who owes him 100 denarii, one denarius was one day's worth wage, so 100 days of work. When you do the math, this man who 
owed his king that much, that many talents, 10,000, owed 45 times more to the king than this one fellow servant. But this guy, who was shown mercy by the king, comes and he kind of shakes him. You know, he, he threatens, I'm going to throw you into prison and your family into prison. I'm going to take all measures available to me by the legal system. I'm going to do you in. Wow. We know the rest of the story. The king heard about it and he threw this guy in. The Huskow forever, pretty much. Well, mercy is what the Lord wants. He wants us to be forgiving, doesn't he? In that passage in Luke 6 where it says, Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Do not judge, you shall not be judged. Do not condemn, and you shall not be condemned. And listen to this. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. By the standard of measure you use in your forgiving, your pardoning, it shall be measured to you. Now, before we move on from what Jesus says there in Luke 6, pay attention to the word pardon or forgive. The word literally is the word release. Release and you will be released. What does that suggest? Here's what it suggests. If I hold you in contempt and I do not forgive you, I am bound to you. I am your slave. I belong in the camp of being a slave of the Lord, not a slave of another human being. Some of you are holding people hostage with unforgiveness. You have not forgiven them. They have offended you, and it was wrong. But you have not found it in your heart to let go of them. As we look one last time in Hebrews chapter 12, it says in verse 15, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. We're to be gracious, stooping to give to people what they don't deserve in the area of forgiveness and mercy. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by many be defiled. Do you know that there are many, many people in the body of Christ who are still unforgiving? And please understand the danger associated with that. What does Jesus teach in what we call the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our trespasses, our debts, as we forgive those who are our debtors, those who have trespassed against us. It is a supernatural act that is necessary to let people go, to release them in your own mind What it does, it takes the bitterness out of your soul. Many people wrestle with unresolved issues in their lives. And they cannot pinpoint why they just can't find a place of peace. Here is the answer. They have not forgiven persons or a person and let that person go. What we do know about the Lord is that he is the one who knows how to take revenge in a way that's not sinful. He does it. He does it his way, and it always works. Just leave it in the Lord's hands. That's what God tells us. Let him deal with that person or persons who have offended you one by one in your mind. I want to encourage you. You have people in your mind 
already, some just one. But let that person go. Ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to do that. He will do that today. And you will be contributing to a more harmonious body of believers. Let's go back and look at the last beatitude. We won't take long here at all. Verse 9 of Matthew 5. This is the seventh of eight beatitudes. I'm not talking about blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness today. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're to make peace, not war. Notice it does not say blessed are the peacekeepers. There's a difference. Sometimes we have to enter into an uncomfortable situation to make peace. It's not easy to make peace. But Jesus talks about this later in this great Sermon on the Mount. He says, If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, what are you just supposed to do? Leave your offering there and go and find your brother and be reconciled to your brother or sister then come back and resume worship. We're to be peacemakers. We're to take the initiative. Even if we think we didn't do anything wrong, maybe that person is mistaken. That's not the point, is it? The point is we make peace. And why? If we took time to go back and look at this, what we would discover is that the person who is angry at me because of some imagined or real offense the person who is angry at me will be tempted by the devil to call me good for nothing and maybe even call me a fool. And what Jesus says in that is a person who calls another one good for nothing and a fool is in danger of the fiery hell. That's strong. That person, Jesus would say, has committed murder in his or her heart. So if I really love my brother and my sister, and know that I've offended him or her. As humbling as it is for me to go and say, please forgive me. What I'm doing, it's an act of love par excellence because I'm saying, I don't want you to be guilty of murder in your heart. I care about you. I care about harmony in the body of Christ. This is what Jesus would say to you and he would say to me. So what are the qualities of the kingdom of heaven. It's a different kind of kingdom, isn't it? There are three ideas that have emerged, at least. What are they? Humility, holiness, and harmony. I'll close with reminding you today that when Jesus was praying what we call the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, You will recall that he asked the Father, Father, I pray that they, meaning us, may be one. As you and I are one, I pray they'll be one. And the stakes are high, Father. You and I know that. If so, the world will know that you sent me, that I am indeed the Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. If you're here this morning and you know that you're not in the kingdom of heaven, why not today humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Admit to God 
that you have called the shots in your life and you want to yield your life to Him, would you just do that? Take a moment quietly to do that. Tell Him you're sorry for doing that. Tell Him you want to be submitted to Him. To give Him control of your life. Ask Him to create a hunger and a thirst for Himself in your life. And then say to the Lord, Lord, I want to be an agent of harmony in your kingdom and in this world. Forgive me, Lord, of my pride. Fill me with yourself. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who teaches gentleness and humility. And you don't simply teach it, but you give it to us as we... Follow you. Thank you. Amen.